Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with our guest today, economist Dr. Ann Bradley, who serves in a a variety of different roles. Uh, She is the Academic Director for the Fund for American Studies. She is the Vice President for Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, both of those in Washington, D.C., She has taught at George Mason University, Georgetown University, Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic, uh, and she's got a number of other things on her resume that would take much too long to go into in detail. She is the editor and contributor of two terrific books. Uh, One is called Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism, and the other was entitled For the Least of These, A Biblical Answer to Poverty. I've read them both, both terrific books, uh, and I know that the job of editing is a lot, sometimes a lot more complicated than actually writing and contrib- or contributing to these. So, Anne, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, really appreciate you taking time to come on with us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Excited so, to be here. You know, you've spent a lot of time thinking about economic inequality, uh, and there's this is a very controversial subject, mm-hmm. as, and as the as the election season starts to get rolling again, uh, we're going to we're going to hear a lot of people talking about economic inequality from a variety of different perspectives. So, maybe this would be the place to start. Are you are you troubled by what what some people say is a growing economic inequality? Maybe the first place to start was is is economic inequality growing? today. And if so, is that something that troubles you as an Mm -hmm. economist? Uh, Good question. I think good place to start. So inequality, as we measure it, we use something called the Gini coefficient, so we don't have to get too technical, but it's a statistical measure that, um, based on tax returns that lets us understand um, the disparities in income or the equalities in income. And it's going up a little bit in the United States. And I would say, but overall across the globe, it's going down. So um, I think the bigger picture is a different story, and it's a good story. But I even think the smaller picture, which is how are we doing in the United States, we have to really get into the weeds to answer that question. So I will say this. I am not concerned about slight growth in inequality per se. It doesn't have to mean that more people are poor than they were before. And it doesn't imply necessarily that the rich somehow have more power than they did before. So, of course, to really understand this, we have to understand who's getting rich, how are they earning their money, which is something that the Gini coefficient cannot tell us. So I think we need to have a bigger kind of conversation around what's really going on here in the United States and how concerned should we be about it. And I have some thoughts on some of those things, but I just think... Strictly looking at the inequality numbers, I don't think there's something to be alarmed about per se. Okay. Now, you made, you made an interesting comment about glo- globally inequality is de- is decreasing. Yeah. How, how do you account for that? Because we still see lots of places around the world that seem stuck in intractable poverty. Very poor. Right. And that's true. And I think there's a lot of work to do in the world. But it is an amazing time to be alive, I think, for a lot of reasons. But if you look at the past 250 years of human history, uh, it's really been an amazing story of human progress. Um, And of course, we don't care about 
progress just for material things. We don't care about money for its own sake, but money is really important for people to be able to care for their families, live longer lives, live healthier lives, and then be generous with, with their income. So, of course, we know all that's important. But if you look at the globe, the poorest countries today, which still tend to be clustered in sub-Saharan Africa, are richer today than they were 50 years ago. So we're just seeing this tide of global wealth that's been unleashed because human creativity has been unleashed. And so inequality globally is going down and the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting richer faster than the rich are getting richer. So that's exciting. Good. That, yeah, that's, that's very good news. It's good news. You don't, you don't hear a lot. No. Um, and that, I find that really encouraging. So here, back to the U.S. Sure. Why, why do you think the subject of inequality is, is, is this such an emotional thing? Because, yeah. I mean, when politicians talk about it, it's like a moral crusade mm-hmm. to, to rid the world of economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Why, why, is this so, why does this tug at our emotional heartstrings like it does? I, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a full answer, but I don't think it's new. And if you go back and read Shakespeare, you know, you, you, you definitely, this, the pitting of the rich against the poor is not a new idea. I think it's a very emotional idea, as you say. And to be frank, I think politicians capitalize on that emotion uh, because most people don't understand why equality is changing. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. It's just that most people haven't done digging into the statistics on what's really going on and how are things changing. And so I think we need to hold politicians accountable for the things they're saying. One thing at the core of this, to answer your question, that I think is really important is politicians jump on this and people tend to do this also in their own thinking, which is that we treat poverty and inequality as the same. They're two sides of the same coin, and that is absolutely false. So you can live in a world where there's large disparities between a Jeff Bezos and, you know, the poorest person. Uh, or I should say the person with the least amount of income, but that the person with the least amount of income has a lot of things and lives a good life. So inequality doesn't necessarily mean that some people are poor. Um, and so I think we need to separate those conversations. We've done a very bad job of that politically. And But I think in, in our own thinking as Christians, we are called to care for the poor. And I've never met a Christian who disagrees with that command. But what we disagree on is the how. So if you think that changing inequality is the way to care for the poor. You're actually going to run uphill forever. You can never get equality. Uh, and so the, the bigger question, I think, is what do we do to help the poor transition into greater productivity and um, figure out what it is they're supposed to do? How do we help them unleash their own human agency? Things like those are the real questions of poverty. Yeah, I mean, so sometimes we forget, I think, that for most of the history of civilization, people were incredibly equal. <laughs> you know, they were just equally poor, and equally wretched, poor. and miserable yes. at the same time. It's and, true. And so with progress, you're, you're going to see people who will move socioeconomic classes at different pace, at a different pace than others. Yes. Um, but there's, I think there's, there's still, I think, something that eats away at most people when they see these vast mm-hmm. differences. And I wonder if it relates to how people, you made a statement that just because there's there's inequality doesn't mean that that necessarily the rich have more power right than the poor i, I wonder if that's if that is a misperception that's at the heart of why why people get are getting so bent out of shape yeah about growing inequality how, how, because i think it's widely assumed mm-hmm. that 
money, money equals power. Yes. So how, how do you support the claim that maybe that's not necessarily so? Yeah, that's a good question. And I do think that you're right. It gets to the heart of why we feel like it's wrong somehow. So think about Amazon headquarters. You know, there's multiple now. But if Jeff Bezos is in the office that day and there's a janitor that cleans the bathrooms, that's a lot of inequality in one building. Mm -hmm. And I think we feel like maybe there's too much money. Maybe Jeff doesn't need all that money. And, and so, therefore, we should take some of it, right? So I think that's that eats at us. Um, and if you look, as you mentioned, the scope of human history has been a lot of equality and a lot of poverty. So they have historically gone together. There's been might has made right. Mm -hmm. And so people have lived very exploited, short, poor lives. And so maybe that's part of why we feel an, a visceral response to we just mm -hmm. think that's the way it used to be. But I actually think in one of our books, for the least of these, uh, theologian Walter Kaiser writes about um, Old Testament, you know, wealth in the Old Testament. And he, he says, if you look at the prophets and the things they were saying about wealth, it wasn't that wealth was bad. It was how you earned your wealth that mattered. So if wealth was earned by exploitation, by taking political power and being able to prevent other people from rising their or growing their own incomes, that was morally and biblically wrong. But earning money because you're creating something and selling it to people and people have to buy it, you can't force them to buy it. That's not coercive power. So I do think you're right. There's a misconception that economic wealth translates always into political influence and political power. That is not inherent to a market economy, but it is a problem with our current political system. I think that's a great observation, and I think sometimes we miss that when we read the scripture about wealth and possessions. I, th mm -hmm. I think it's, I think Kaiser's right on target. I think in that you know the vast majority of wealth that was gained in the ancient world was done through incredibly faith compromising, morally compromised means, mm -hmm. and it was wealth, theft, extortion, right. some sort of abuse of power. And so it wasn't, in the ancient world, it wasn't that money brought power. It was that power brought money yeah. to people in ways that were almost always morally uh, questionable, which is one of the reasons why I think Jesus said that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with having wealth, right. but the way it was gained right. was so problematic. Right. Uh, let me, one other thing just to clarify this. Is there a difference between measuring inequality based on income and measuring it based on wealth? Because I can see where people might go in and out of income classes, you know, quite quite a lot over their lifetime. Yeah. You know, like we were both grad students. We were among the poorest of the poor, I think, for... And roughly, you know, there's a, l a large part of the population that is below the poverty line for some, at least some point of their lives. Yeah. But is that different when you consider wealth? as the measuring stick and not income? Yes, yeah, so that's a really good technical point because when we're looking at income inequality, that's what we're measuring is income holdings. Wealth is a different ball game because we're measuring things that are assets. Uh, the other thing that's really hard to measure about wealth is how you feel about your... So if you have a Picasso on the wall at home, that's worth a lot. But very few people would sell it to actually gain the income. So wealth is a harder thing to measure. But when we do measure it, we actually still see disparities, right, between wealth and income. And I like your point about being a graduate student, which is 
I didn't have a lot of extra money, but I always had a roof over my head. And I ate several times a day. It might not have been the best food, ramen noodles or packets of oatmeal. But I ate every day and I didn't worry about not eating. And so, again, I think that takes us back to I had a safety net, a family safety net. I knew I could be poor for a little bit because I was going to be able to grow my income later. People who are born into poverty, whether it's in the United States or in in the world, don't always have that hope. Uh, they don't have the safety net. And so those are, I think, the questions Christians have to dedicate themselves to. And what we forget a lot, and your point about Jesus not condemning wealth on the whole is important. Market-based economies provide an avenue for us to work, which is what God commands us to do, but also to serve people through our work in the process of buying and selling. And that process makes us all better off. And so that's part has got to be part of the poverty conversation. We can't just give aid. Aid is necessary. It's just, it's not sufficient. Aid plus helping people cultivate their skills right. and open businesses and go to school or all those things. Well, I don't know the numbers specifically, but I would guess that if aid were the, the solution, we would have solved this some time ago. You're right. We would have solved it because, the, and I don't mean this to sound kind of arrogant, but aid is easy in some ways, right? You can say, well, that's right. we have a lot of money, People in the Democratic Republic of the Congo don't. It's very easy for us to transfer cash. It's also very easy to transfer water and food and vaccines. Um, And I mean easy in the sense that we can identify the problems and move resources around. But that's not enough. And you're right. We've done that for years, years and years and years, Uh, not just the U.S., but uh, other allied organizations. And we haven't solved poverty through aid. So I think aid provides the short-term help. But we have to walk along people for the longer term to help them, you know, figure out not only what they're going to do, but how to fix the broken environment that they live in. So that's part of it, too. Yeah. Now, on the, on the issue of inequality, how do you persuade people to, that, that the way a market economy works today is different than it worked in the ancient world and that it works in some parts of the developing world, too? Mm-hmm. Uh, you use the term crony capitalism to describe it in some parts of the developing world and in the U.S. But I think it's, it's widely viewed that the growing inequality is because the rich are getting richer at the expense right. of the poor. Right. So how, how do you, I mean, that could be a fairly technical point to yes. talk about that. But how do, you, how do you put that in layman's terms to persuade people that that's not the case today? I think we just have to go back to the basics of, and so what the way I think about economics is absolutely entrenched in a, a, an understanding of scripture. So when I, in fact, talk about the economic way of thinking, I start and I spend the first 20 minutes of an hour lecture talking about Genesis, which is people think, what what's she doing? <laughs> and I'm not a theologian. I've learned from them. But the point is, if you look at Genesis, you get an understanding of what God desired for his creation and his designs of his creation and of us. Okay, so that gives us purpose, our marching orders, but it also tells us about our limitations and why we need each other. And so I think we have to go back to those basics. That's a harder story to tell. So you need time with people. Um, But I think that's the way to do it because people like that message because it's true. Mm -hmm. We like to hear the message that we all are created to do something special and there's never been another one of us. You know, we're not replicable. And so we're um, God's, you know, we are Imago Dei. So all of that stuff, I think, is what I start with because then I think you can get people to say, okay, if that's true, then what type of society best suits that? I don't think we should be 
apologists for capitalism in the in the way that we would say maybe the Bible advocates for capitalism because the Bible is not an economics textbook and it doesn't the capitalism wasn't practiced in ancient times but markets were there as you said people have always traded they've had to if you don't trade you die so you have to trade but large scale markets are new in the scope of human history so I think we need to talk about human agency human dignity and how trade and commerce fit into that yeah, I think uh, your, your point about markets, broad-scale markets being new, I think is a great point because we've always had markets, even even if they were very primitive. Yes. But the sophisticated, sort of widespread, ubiquitous markets that we have today are a thing relatively new in the last, what, two, three hundred years. Right. And so the, the idea that, that the size of the pie is not necessarily fixed. Yes, but is is consistently growing now. It may be that you you're getting a bigger slice of the pie than I am, and that may be that may be just the way it goes, mm-hmm. or it may be the result of merit, or it may be the result of an injustice that I'm getting right. that there's inequality. Um, but just the fact that you can do do well financially and be doing good at the same time, serving and loving your neighbor, I think is something that is brand new that wasn't a part of life in biblical times yeah uh, and as we understand it the way i ask my students this question is when you go to work in the morning whether you're working in the college cafeteria or you work at starbucks or you know you babysit or whatever you do to make money um when you go to work and you put your starbucks apron on do you view that as taking an opportunity away from another person and they all say no they say i'm working hard i'm paying my bills i'm putting myself through college well what jeff bezos does And, you know, Bill Gates is the same thing. Uh, It's on a different scale, right? But they're going and they're using their human creativity and they're um, creating a product that people like or creating a service that people like. And so the economy can be zero sum. And the worst performing economies today are economies where global trade and, you know, kind of um, global commerce are not... Uh, pertinent to those people. And so they have to find very primitive ways to trade and they're exploited and plundered by their governments. And so that's the very problem is they don't have access to these markets that could enable them to be better off. And I think that's the story we have to tell because as Christians, I always also say, don't we want the poor to be not poor anymore? And if we mean that, then we want them to grow in their income. And so, you know, kind of on, on that side of things we are for growing wealth and growing right. incomes. And so but by, by zero sum, you mean that the, the, the pie is fixed? The pie is fixed, sorry. Yeah, so if I win, it's because I've taken an opportunity or if my income is income that you are not getting. When rather, uh, in a, again, in a market economy, my income is providing a service. So if I want that income, I need to be good at what I do. And if I'm not good at what I do, then I have to find something else to do. So there's a discipline to that. Now, Ann, you've done a lot of thinking about the, the various things that get in the way of markets working like they were intended to do. Mm-hmm. Things like you write about corporate welfare. Uh, you write about the, this, the phenomena of crony capitalism, which you claim is sort of a, um, what's the best term for that? Just a, I was going to say a bastardized view. Yeah, no, I think but, that's right. But I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we. Distortion. Can, I'm not sure we can say that yeah. publicly. But it's a distortion, distortion of the market. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So what? What do you? What exactly do you mean by the term crony capitalism? Well, if I can say this, I prefer cronyism because I think crony capitalism implies 
that there are alternate versions of capitalism and some are better than others. So for me, cronyism is uh, using economic wealth to change political or uh, political outcomes or what we might say in economics, the rules of the game, right? You're rigging the system in some way or another to benefit yourself at the expense of other people. So, and how is this kind of facilitated? In many cases, it's through uh, corporate welfare, which is perks, benefits uh, to large corporations, or it's done through regulations. So regulations which might make it hard, let's say you're a new entrepreneur and I'm in the industry and I don't want you to be in the industry because it means I have to work harder. So I might go to the state legislature and say, hey, um, I don't want Scott you know, um, on my turf. So can we make it harder for him to open a business? Because I don't really like competition. And so those types of things uh, really get in the way. They distort the market process and they rig the game. And the very problem, the reason I talk about this in the same conversation as inequality is because this is where I think people have a point about inequality, which is that inequality that's born from that, rigging the game to protect your own interests, is very distortionary and harmful. One more thing I'll say about that is it disproportionately harms the poor. If you're running a small business um, and, you know, you don't have the access to lobbyists and million-dollar lawyers who can litigate these regulations on your behalf and spend time on Capitol Hill or whatever they're doing, you can't play the game. And so the little guys get kind of swamped by the big guys who can afford to do those things. So, Anne, give me give me some examples mm. of what you would consider to be corporate welfare sure. in ways that distort market mechanisms. Okay. So there's many, of course, but um, I can think of a couple. One is... You start with the most egregious ones. Okay. So there's, um, a, there's a good example, um, which is a little bit dated at this point, but Solyndra, which was an energy firm, mm-hmm. and it received a very large check from the federal government and the state of California... Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And the idea was what? So the idea was, we're going to create alternative energy sources, right? So solar power. And the federal government was interested in facilitating alternative energy sources. So they kind of assisted this large company. And what Solyndra was telling, especially the state of California, is that it's going to, it's going to create a thousand jobs just to create the building, this big plant that we need. And of course, the building was built um, but at the end of the day, the technology in solar panels was changing so much that Solyndra was being outcompeted by its rivals. So that cash was really just a Hail Mary to stay in business. And of course, that story ends with the FBI raiding the offices and the homes of Solyndra executives who then later went to jail. And you didn't have a productive business that was creating jobs. You actually had nothing. You had wasted millions of dollars. So that's an example. Um Another example that I think helps us understand how this disproportionately harms the poor, and the Institute for Justice is a really important nonprofit that spearheads some of these campaigns. So it's the case of the hair braiders is basically what we call it. And so this tends to be um, limited, but not always, to African-American women, and they braid hair. And sometimes they'll do this in a busy tourist street on the sidewalk, but often they'll do it in their home. They're not using scissors, and they're not using chemicals. So there's no kind of... Um, claim you can make about public health or public safety. But what we've seen is across 32 states is that existing salons and, you know, kind of hairdressing places, they are going to their state legislatures 
and lobbying for these hair braiders to have to go to cosmetology school. Now, I want you to think about if you're a woman, maybe you're supporting your children and your husband, or maybe you don't have a husband and you're a single mom, and you want to braid hair in your basement. It's a way for you to earn income for your family. You, The whole point is that you just need the skills, a table, right, a mirror, and some combs. You don't need a lot of capital. I call it micro-entrepreneurship. But if you have to go to cosmetology school, that makes it much harder for you to do this. And that's exactly what we've seen in states that have the most hours, in some cases, 2,200 hours of cosmetology school, which costs thousands and thousands of dollars, and they're deciding not to do it. So you've now destroyed an opportunity for people at the bottom of the income distribution. So Institute for Justice is actually taking this up and trying to fight for them. But those are two, I think, egregious examples. those Those are both good examples. You know, you you write in some of your work about the candle makers <laughs> petition mm-hmm. as a really early example of corporate welfare. What what is, what is what what's that example historically? So this is this is a legend. This is written by uh, uh, famous economist Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat, and he basically said this is the candle makers petition um, to this kind of Congress. And 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 if you read the petition, it says on behalf of all candle makers, wax makers, tapers, street lamps, and the people who provide the alcohol and the pe- kerosene and all the things that go into candle making, we would like you to find a way to stop the sun because the sun is our competition so obviously you don't need a candle during the day because you have the sun um and so it's it's silly right but the whole idea is that that's exactly i mean why would we want to block the sun the sun is the closest example to to free that we have it's free energy it's free light. Why would you want to block free? You'd hurt a lot of people, but you would save the candle makers. And so uh, he writes this to show the absurdity of these kind of protectionist claims to protect one industry at the expense of the others. But the, the lengths that people will go to to try to get those benefits, because the benefits are real for a small group of people. Yeah. You know, um, I, I could see somebody saying that... Uh, you know, lots of governments around the world help out their industries. You know, Airbus, for mm-hmm. example, is a, is a good example. And, you know, so the Boeing having to compete against Airbus is a pretty gun-level playing field. So if that's happening in other parts of the world, why shouldn't the U.S. also be supporting and subsidizing many of its key industries so that they can compete better or more fairly on a global basis. Yeah, and I agree with you. Um, there are other governments around the world, including ours, but um, you know, do a lot of things that are bad economic choices. But I think just because one country is making a bad economic choice does not mean that we can or should follow suit. And the reason I say that is your point about the level playing field is understandable and well taken, uh, but I'm not even sure it levels the playing field because the problem is that it... It sets not only a precedent for more cronyism and more kind of petitioning for corporate welfare down the road, but I actually think that it, it doesn't inject the competition which these industries so desperately need. So Boeing is certainly a beneficiary of lots of corporate welfare. Um, so it's not like, you know, Airbus has corporate welfare and they don't. 
Uh, I just looked up the other day. I can't remember what their benefits are from the military industrial complex, but you know, it's in the order of billions. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not like a free market is competing with a kind of unfree market. I think unfree markets are (laughs) competing against each other. And the, the point is the world would be better off in terms of the prices that consumers pay for their goods and services and the safety of those goods and services if we didn't have that. Because you're you're what you're doing in terms of the market process is you're disrupting the quest for profit. So why economists like the profit mex- mechanism and the maximization of profit is that if you're maximizing profit, you're always trying to be a good steward about the costs. You're trying to lower them while giving consumers what they want, which when you're riding in an airplane, you don't just want good Wi-Fi. You want to get there safely. And of course, with these situations with Boeing recently, that, you know, mistakes are made and those kind of mistakes can be fatal. So anyway, I think the point here is that um, you don't want to go down the road of distorting the market process because I think it does two things. It interrupts the the uh, efficiency and safety of what the market would bring, but it also changes the game. So now what we see people doing is they'll make a government plan for their business before they make a business plan because the precedent has been set that you have to play that game to survive. And so I think it's actually going to be really hard in the U.S. to disentangle ourselves from the cronyism that we're in. I don't have a good answer of how we do that other than raising awareness about it because I think that there's an injustice to it. Now, I mean, you wonder, you know, how would we how would we disentangle farm subsidies, yeah. for example, without, you know, without putting tons of farmers out of business who have become dependent on that. And I think it's right to say if it's a problem that they become dependent on that uh, and have not done what they could have done yeah. in terms of in terms of remaining competitive. But uh, you know, how would you do? How would you disentangle yeah. it without causing? A lot, a lot of hardship. I mean, I think you'll cause some unrest and disruption, of course. Anytime you undo a benefit that somebody's used to, um, that's hard. But I think uh, there's an ethical case that we can make that it's right to do so. And if you look at, I mean, this is not 1800 anymore either, right? So I think it's like under 3% of the American population is, is actually involved in the production of agriculture. It used to be 97%. So you would have a disruption. Some people would be harmed. Most people that would be harmed are large corporate farms. So this idea of kind of the mom and pop farmer is also, um, it's not the, it's the exception. It's not the norm of how Mm -hmm. large scale agriculture is produced. That's mostly local farmers markets and things like that. And I think you could still have those things. So I still think it's the right thing to do. But yes, anytime we go in and change the benefits, people will have to sink or swim. So let, let me take that sink or swim Sure. One step further. Back 10 years ago, when the, the global banking system nearly froze up, uh, would you have supported the government bailing out the big banks in the aftermath of the financial crisis? I would not have supported that. That's my short answer. My longer answer is that if you look back at the history on this, there's a really good little booklet you can get called The House That Uncle Sam Built on this issue. Uh, and if you look at the way the government was involved in the loan process, but also in just the encouraging of homeownership, kind of at all costs, um, is what led to this demise in the first place. And so there ended up being a very few people on Wall Street that understood the complexities of the system and used that for their own gain at the expense of everyone else. So I actually think it's a regulatory, a failure of the regulations to make what was clear a lot more opaque, and that allows for bad behavior. 
And if you bail out banks, you basically, it's like a child. I have little kids, right? If I just, if I never follow through with what I say I'm going to do from a discipline point of view, they don't ever change their behavior. And it's my job as a parent to govern them in an appropriate way. And in the same way that the market governs behavior and you are going to sink sometimes. And I think the big banks could have failed. I think there would have been short-term economic consequences. And I think the longer-term economy would have been just fine. So I think we get absolutely paralyzed with fear about these things. And I don't think that fear is always well-founded. Is the whole U.S. banking system going to collapse because we let GM fail? No, I don't think so. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that's true. But I think what's more dangerous is bailing out people who behave badly because they just they go back to the drugs, to use that metaphor, right? They just go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one final question. Sure. Um, this has been really insightful, and I, I hope our listeners appreciate the good, the good lesson in economics that they've gotten from somebody who's also very interested in integrating a Christian worldview yeah. to this, too. So I appreciate b- b- the, both of those components. Um, but what, what are you encouraged about, about the spread of prosperity around the world? Uh, are you know, t- tell us a little bit about what, what gives you hope mm. uh, and what sort of keeps you getting up in the morning to pursue the things you're doing. Yeah, what a great question. I love this question. And I'm a, a natural optimist, uh, but I'm also an economist who I, I think I have good reason to be to be optimistic. If you look at the world over the past 250 years, it's, it's an amazing thing. So for most of human history, people lived around $100 to $400 per person per year. And they died very um, young, and they lived very difficult lives. Uh, so, you know, just getting um, a staph infection could kill you, right? Because you don't have antibiotics and the things that we take for granted. So when I look across the world, what I'm excited about is the chance for the world's poor to get access to that type of prosperity, that prosperity that's mutual, um, is not only exciting, but it's it's something you could bet on. So um, world poverty has been cut in half since 1980. And by 2030, we think the global poverty rate will be under 3%. In right. 1820, it was 95%. Yeah. So that's not a very, that's your great, great, great grandparents, maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that long ago. Uh, so I, I'm very hopeful for that, and I'm hopeful for it not just because I care about, again, money for its own sake, but I think this allows us to live into who God wants us to be, and I think that should give all of us hope, because I do believe that what we do here is eternally significant. I'm not a theologian, and I even the, probably the best theologians don't know what that means in terms of, I don't know how this is going to be redeemed in the new heaven and new earth, but I don't think all of the stuff we do every day, the classes we teach the accounting you know, advice we give, the coaching of little leagues, all the stuff matters. And so we need to be enabled to do it well. And I think our uh, the abundance that we can have is God's blessing to us, and he wants that for his people, and I'm very hopeful that we can get more of that. So I'm, I'm excited no, about that, the future. Well, that, that's really helpful. And I, that's, what, what a good note to end this conversation on because it's, it's theologically integrated, uh, it's economically sound, and I think it's it's historically accurate too to see the progress that's been made over the last couple hundred years. To 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 hear you forecast that by 2030 the world's poverty rate might be down in single digits is just is unbelievably exciting. 
It is. Uh, now, a daunting task to, yes. to make that happen, uh, but very encouraging stuff. So yeah. this has been so helpful, so insightful, and uh, I wish we're going to have to have a, a part two on this okay. at some point. So I would, we would look forward to that. But, Anne, thank you so much for coming on with us. I think our listeners have gotten a really good lesson in economics, but one that's theologically well-framed and well-formed. And really appreciate your role as an economist, but also really serious about integrating Christian faith into your discipline. Thank you. It was fun to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Ann Bradley, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.